So I've noticed something. <laughs> I'll just own it. This is about me too. Guys are terrible at taking hints. Can anybody relate? Ladies, go ahead and just, <clears throat> your husband. Like, we're bad at hints. Partly because if we say something, that's just how guys think. If you say you're fine, we assume you mean you're fine. Guys, let me tell you, sometimes I'm fine means you're in a world of trouble. <laughs> now ladies are like, yeah. Can I get an eight? So like, guys are bad at it. We miss the signals. I, I'm owning it myself. I don't get hints. I don't do hints well. Sometimes it even gets me in trouble as a pastor. Like, if you're hinting around that you need your pastor, don't do that. If you need me, just, hey, Charlie, okay, I got it. I don't need, because I, I can't do the hint thing. I don't do the hint thing very well. I don't do the, I don't even do, sometimes Charlotte does this to me. She does like the, the uh, made me read her lips, like she's trying to tell me something quietly, like, and I'm like, because uh, I can't read what she's saying. That's how dense I am. I mean, and sometimes we just miss huge signals that are trying to be saved. You know, it's like, the wife can be there with yellow flares, you know, like, and we'll be like, she said she was fine, I don't know. It just works that way. As I was reading through the scriptures this week, one of the things I noticed is that the triumphant entry into Jerusalem for Palm Sunday was a huge adventure in missing the point. It really was. The disciples missed it, the Pharisees missed it, everybody missed it. Because what are they doing? We're going to read the scripture about the story, but just to set this up, Jesus is entering Jerusalem, and what's happening? It's a party, right? It's this huge parade. People are gathered in the street. Let's read the story, part of the story. We're going to jump around the story this morning and drive home what I'm saying. But this is huge adventure. Now, the disciples have prepared the cult. They have, where we're picking up in the story, they have laid out their cloaks on the ground. People are gathering, laying their cloaks on the ground. They're laying palm branches on the ground, which is why we do what we did on Palm Sunday. There's this huge thing happening where we pick up the story in chapter 19, verse 35. I know it's right in the middle of the story. You'll see why in a minute. As they were untying the colt, it's, oops, that's not 35. There we go. Then they brought it to Jesus, the, the, the horse, the colt. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people were spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Now you've got three groups, really, in this little part of the story of the triumphant entry, right? You've got the disciples who have brought Jesus the cult and laid out their cloaks. You've got the crowds who are excited that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, laying out their cloaks, laying out the palm branches, getting ready to welcome him into Jerusalem. And then you've got these Pharisees. They're like, don't tell them to say, call you welcome as he who, like the, the naysayers, right? The negative folks, the ones that are like, they shouldn't be, call they shouldn't be calling you Lord. What, what, 
whole bunch of dynamics going on there. So you get these three groups, different reactions. The disciples are excited and preparing the way. The people are like, it's a party. And the Pharisees are like, no. Right? They've all missed it. They've all missed what's happening. They've all missed, and there are hints in the events that they've missed. There are some things inherent in the way this is playing out that tells us that all three groups have missed the hint. First of all, the disciples, what, do they must, what must the disciples assume is happening? Hey, we're going into Jerusalem. Jesus is finally going to be the Messiah. Let's have a parade. Let's have a victory parade, a triumphant entry, we call it, right? Now, what has Jesus told them about his mission to earth over and over and over again? The Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man, will, I will die, I will go away, and I will return. He has told them that on multiple occasions. And on some level, they're still like, is this the moment? Because this parade, this procession described in these passages, is exactly what it looks like when a conquering, victorious king returns home. This is what they did when David would go and conquer the Philistines and come back to Jerusalem. They'd have a similar parade. And they would rush out of the city to meet the king as he's coming back in and wave his, and shout praises. And bless. There's, there's stories in the Old Testament where they, they make Saul jealous because they shout out how awesome David is. And they say, Saul's killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. To which Saul went, I don't like that. Because David held this awesome glory in battle and they were praising him for it. And that's what this picture looks like. They're treating Jesus as a coming Messiah King. How do we know that? Look at the words they use. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. By the way, that's Psalm 118. That's what the crowd is shouting. That's what the disciples are probably leading them in shouting. They've set out the red carpet for Him to come in. They've rushed out and they're singing or praising Him with words from Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the high, in the highest heaven. Now, Psalm 118 is tied to the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, consult my notes, <laughs> wherever they are. Oh man, I just drew a blank. Hold on, hold on. If you're listening, patient. Where'd it go? I'll get back to that in a minute because I can't find it. Ay, ay, ay. One more cup of coffee. This would be a smooth sermon. <laughs> They're shouting praises from Psalm 118. They're calling him the chosen one sent by God. And the Pharisees are obviously troubled over the political display that this is. Here it is. I found it. Thank you. So, the Feast of Tabernacles was the celebration of the liberation of people of God from Egypt. From when they threw off their oppressors. So when Jesus is entering, the entering Jerusalem and they're waving palm branches and laying out cloaks they're shouting words associated with the last time an oppressive political military power was overthrown and they were rescued from it. The disciples and the crowd have missed the point. They think this is it. 
This is the beginning of the end of Rome's rule over us. This is tied to the tabernacle, of the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the next great exodus. See you, Rome. That's what they're saying. Now, the Pharisees would rightly be concerned because what does that do to them if, if the disciples are right? Where does their power come from at this point in history? Partly from the Mosaic Law and helping people fulfill it, but also partly from the establishment of Rome. And what does Rome do when somebody gets to be too rancorous in one of their colonies? And, and remove the powers that let it happen. They're not so much disagreeing with the praises as realizing what this political statement, they see what's happening. Again, they misunderstand what is happening, but they see this parade, they, see these, they hear these words, and they assume that Jesus is becoming Messiah. And what that means for them is Rome is just going to come down on us even harder. And they might remove those that were in power at the time because they allowed it to happen. Or they might just flat out crush the Jewish people for allowing it to happen. Now, I said that they missed points. Missed, they missed some hints in here, right? They missed some understanding of what's going on. The biggest hint in this parade so far is the choice of animal. He's not on a big war stallion. He didn't just do some conquering thing. He's on a, a colt, a baby horse, a donkey, whatever. Like a, not, not the war horse. A donkey, a colt, right? Now, that's, that ought to have been hint number one. They were like a dude with his wife. They missed the hint. Because if you're a conquering king, you're not riding a colt. <laughs> you're riding your war horse. You're on your triumphant victory march above them on the horse, not down on the little colt. <laughs> in fact, when a king did ride a colt, it was in times of peace. It demonstrated their humility and their desire to serve their people, not lord over them. So the cult is that Jesus saying, I didn't come to conquer. I came to serve and in a humble way and in a peaceful way. And there's the hint. And they all missed it. They all didn't get it. He's not coming to take over. There's another hint. Look at verse 41. As he came near and saw the city, talking about Jesus here, he wept over it, saying, If you even had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave, with one, leave you with, it, with one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. They're having a victory parade. They're shouting Hosanna. They're shouting praise to the, one who, the chosen one who has come to rescue his people from slavery and death and tyranny and Rome. And Jesus is crying. There's a hint. You're having a party, and the guy on the horse, on the colt, is crying. And they missed the hint. Now, why is he crying? He's crying 
for the people of Jerusalem and for people, the people of God who have not received Him for who He is, that have rejected Him, that have rejected what He wanted to do, that have misunderstood the intent of the Messiah who don't, or just don't even follow Him at all. But He also is weeping because of what is going to happen to the people of God. And there's a place, another place in His ministry where He told the Pharisees, if you, if you destroy Jerusalem, if you destroy the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And they thought he was talking about the temple. And so they thought, this dude's lost it. It took him like 30 years to build this thing. He's going to put it back in three days. You know, like they're crazy. And he made that same prophecy that he's making here. The day will come when not one stone will stand on the other stone of the temple. Now, I don't know if you know your... Middle Eastern Jewish history. <laughs> but in 70 A.D., that's exactly what happened. The Romans came in, put down a rebellion, and leveled the temple. Destroyed it. And he is riding into Jerusalem in the midst of a massive parade shouting his praises. And he is weeping over the people who have rejected him. And he is weeping over the consequences of what's about to happen to him. Because... He knows what's coming. And he is weeping over what is even going to happen to God's people in the next 30 years. The Pharisees on some level are right. Rome is going to come in and put the hammer down and not one stone will be left. If I'm throwing a party for somebody and they're crying, that's a hint. And they missed it. They didn't see it. And I told you the Pharisees missed it because they thought... This is a huge political uprising and Rome is going to come back. And ultimately they were right. Maybe not that weekend, but some 30, 40 years later, they did exactly that. And Jesus already knows and he is already weeping over their future rejection of him. Triumphant entry, infantry, in, triumphant entry victory day. And he's crying. And what's interesting is he's making this pro prophecy. Here's a huge hint. He's making this prediction that the writer records for us. It's a huge hint of something else that we already know is happening in this, these circumstances. Jesus is in complete control of all the events of Holy Week. He knows what's coming. He instructed the disciples to go get the cult. In fact, the way he instructs them is interesting too. Should have been a hint for the disciples. Look at chapter 19 again. We're going to jump back to the beginning of this story in verse 28. After he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus after throwing their cloaks on the colt and sat Jesus 
So Jesus gives them instructions to prepare for this triumph, triumphant entry into Jerusalem. He says, go into town, up, up the hill here before we get to Jerusalem. Go in there. There's a colt tied up that's never been ridden on. How did Jesus know that? Then he said, when you're untying it, somebody, somebody will stop you. When you do, just tell them this. He lays out exactly what's going to happen. And then what does the next couple of verses tell us? What he prepared for them is exactly what happened. Not only did they go find the colt right where he said, but as they were untying it, somebody tried to stop them. And he said, just tell them the Lord needs it. And that's exactly what they said. And the guy let them go. Now, you could read into this. Jesus set this up. Jesus knew the guy. Maybe it was a disciple who knew the cult would be there. But he says, go do this. When they stop you, say this. It's all worked out in advance. Now, whether he prophetically knew exactly what was going to happen like in his mind or he had just set it up. Either way, Jesus is completely in control of what's about to happen. Have no illusions. He's going into Jerusalem to accomplish what he knows he is going to accomplish. He is weeping over the fact that some will reject him for who he is. And because of that rejection, they will continue to do what they're going to do. And eventually, the city will face consequences from the Roman power. And he's crying over that. But he has all of this in front of him on purpose, on mission, without fail. He's chosen the cult, which, by the way, even the choosing of the cult is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, Zechariah, Zechariah 9, verse 9, that predicted that the Messiah would ride a colt into Jerusalem. He is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy when he does it. None of this stuff is happening because Jesus was like, I don't know, they just stuck me on a colt and I rode into Jerusalem. Next thing I know, I'm being... None of, no, make no mistake. He's been doing things throughout his ministry when he would, tell, he would heal somebody and tell them, don't go tell anybody, which is really weird. Hey, I know I just made you walk for the first time in your life, but don't tell anybody. Can you imagine? If we get a new car, we're like, Facebook, Instagram, you know, here's the pictures, tell everybody, woo, new car, you know. I just healed your legs, don't tell anybody. He does things like that. At one point, he has to miraculously escape being pushed over a cliff because he is watching the timing. He is efforting to control the timing so that when he pays the price for our sins, it is in the fullness of his time, not ours. So even as we go, man, Jesus died for us. Hear this. It was his willful purpose and decision to do so. And the timing of it occurred exactly when he wanted it to occur. When he confronts Pilate, Pilate talks about his authority to release him or execute him. And he says to Pilate, the only, you only have, the only authority you have over me is the authority given to you by God. When Peter tries to free him in the Garden of Eden, he stops him. He says, if I need to fight my way out, don't you know I could call down an army of angels to fight for me? Jesus died for us by his own will, purpose, and design. Even though he had the power to stop it, to change it, to delay it, to avoid it. What is his prayer at the garden? God the Father, 
if there is any other way we can do this. Let's do it. And he follows that with, but not my will, yours be done. Now that is a human moment. That is a moment where he goes, as a man who's about to be executed, I really want to do this some other way. Me too. Right? Right? Like if there's any other way to rescue humanity, can we switch to plan B? That is the really human Jesus talking. There is no doubt. How could it not be? He knows what he's faced with. He knows what he's chosen to do for our sake. He knows where he's headed and what he's about to endure. And there's a part of his humanity that goes, is any option for plan B? No kidding, right? And then what's his immediate response in his spirit to his own desire to do something different? The way this was meant to be done. Let's do it. And even at Palm Sunday, he is guiding the events. He is shepherding the events. He knows what he's about to do. And yet you could say this. He was faithful to the will of God, to his purpose, to his rescue plan, even to death on a cross. Philippians chapter 2. So what does this mean for us? What does all of this mean? Obviously, they missed the hint. But how many times in our life have we missed hints God's given us? How many times are we like, if I had just listened to what God wanted me to do? You ever said those words? In hindsight, if I had just done what God asked, I would have been able to avoid this. (laughs) And yet it was God going, here's how you do it. And we're like... We miss the hints all the time. God puts people in our life. God puts circumstances in our life. God puts sermons in our life. God puts spiritual seasons in our life. God put the scriptures in our life. How many times do we go, do you think this is, that God would be okay with this or not? Here's a 6,000 year developed hint for you. <laughs> If you're wondering what God wants you to do, here's here's an option. We miss it. Because we're people too. We're like the disciples. We're like the crowd. We're like the Pharisees. And sometimes, even if we get the message, we're like, I don't want to hear it. (laughs) I mean, the disciples might have missed it and think Jesus is going to be Messiah. The Pharisees understood the importance of what was going on and they rejected that tends to be our response to the scriptures, by the way. We tend to look at the scriptures, hey, what does God want me to do? That's what he wants. Not doing that. That makes you one of the Pharisees. Hey, God, I really want you to do this for me. You're not going to do that for me? I really want you to do this for me, disciples. They, were, they argued continuously. Who's going to be first in the kingdom and who's going to be on your right hand? Who's going to be on your left hand? What are they planning? Right? What are they planning on this moment? Okay, we're riding a horse into Jerusalem. Yes. Let's get those Romans out of here. Who's going to be first? Who's going to be second? Who's going to be third? Who's going to be 12th? You know, like they're already laying it out. Pecking order. (laughs) They got a bracket, you know, rock, paper, scissors, you know, like whatever it is. They're they're making it an adventure and missing the point. And Jesus has told them over and over again, the son of man must come and die. He's point blank told them that. And then that moment, they're still like, is this the moment? Is this the time? Yeah. 
But we do the same thing. You shall not do this. You shall do this. Don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Don't do this. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Go through the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? You know what I mean? We hear that those are not even hints. Those are like, thou shalt not kill. That's not a hint. That's direct communication. <laughs> but there are plenty of, there's, God reveals himself in indirect ways too in our conversations, in our church services, in our moments of prayer. He drops little subtle hints and we kind of either, we either are the disciples and we have an adventure missing the point or the Pharisees and we're going, yeah, I know that might be what you're saying, but that's not the way I want it to work out. I got a different plan from you, God, and my plan's better. <laughs> when we sin, that's all we're saying, by the way. Anytime we sin, anytime we disobey God's word, all we're doing is telling God that we have a better plan than God. That's what we're saying. Even our better plan can be a good thing. We can say, hey, I really want this to happen. And it can be a good thing on some level. But it's probably being done for the wrong reason. To accomplish your purpose, not His. For your glory, not His. And that breaks the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me and make no graven images. Because anything we love more than God becomes an idol. Anything we put first becomes a violation of that first commandment. And God goes, I've got the plan. Here's how it's going to play out. All you have to do is hear what I'm saying. In fact, you could obviously, even on that verse 44, and it says, if I told them to be quiet, the rocks would cry out. What does that tell us? And this is the, this is the good news of this whole story. We can be as stubborn as we want. By the way, I'm not saying, giving you permission to sin, but we can not listen to God. We can do the opposite. We can work against it the way the Pharisees were. And if necessary, the rocks will cry out. What does that mean? That means that even when we mess up, even when we don't have faith, even when we think we know better than God, God will still faithfully accomplish His purpose. He cannot fail. And if He has to get a rock to do it instead of you, He will. In fact, that's kind of the irony about the whole Pharisee thing is like the rocks are praising God, would be praising God more than the Pharisees. Even creation knows what made it. We can't screw up God's salvation plan. We might miss the hint. We might run contrary to it. And normally God works the way God chooses to work through the people he puts in our life and the relationship he puts in our life, the knowledge of his scripture in our life. Normally that's how God works. But if he has to, the rocks will beat us to it. He cannot fail us in accomplishing his purpose for us. That's the meaning of Easter. That's the meaning of Palm. That's the real meaning of Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of the end, so to speak, as we move toward Easter next Sunday, right? It's the first story in the final week. A lot can happen in seven days. But those seven days changed everything for us. Jesus knew what he was doing when he went to the cross. 
He knew what he was doing when he died on that cross, when he was faithful even to death on the cross because he wept for them. He wept for us. He knows the price he had to pay, but he paid it because of his deep love for us. Let's pray. Gracious God, let us rest this morning in the promise that even in the darkest time, even in the darkest week, even in the darkest moment, you cannot fail your purpose for us. That as we say at Connection, you are always with us. And that is the best truth of all truths. When we don't quite get the message, when we get the message wrong, when we try to do it all ourselves, remind us that you are here waiting to carry and sustain us too. In Christ's name, amen.